Welcome back, everyone, to Faith Unfiltered. This week, we're going to be talking about the topic of Christology. Christology is the study of Christ, who He is, and we're really going to break down the oneness of God and how this differs from the doctrine of the Trinity. So join us today on another episode of Faith Unfiltered. Epistemology is defined by Funk and Wagnall's New World Encyclopedia as the definition of knowledge and related concepts, the sources and criteria of knowledge, the kinds of knowledge possible and the degree to which each is certain, and the exact relation between the one who knows and the object known. This is important to understand because it heavily influenced Christology, or the study of Christ, who he is, and what he did. Unfortunately, Greek philosophers did not view Christ in the totality of Scripture, but took an approach fueled by what's called dualism, the idea that the immaterial could not touch the material. This brought about the epistemological shift. In the middle to late 2nd century, which is the moving from a Jewish epistemology to a Greek epistemology within Christianity. Instead of viewing God as someone who interacts with the affairs of man, he is now viewed as the unmoved mover, bringing about the idea of the Logos and the heresy that Jesus could not possibly be God. The Apostle John mentioned this Logos in the first verse of his gospel, saying, In the beginning was the Word, in Greek, that is ho-logos, and the word was with God, in Greek, that is prostanthan, and the word was God, in Greek, that is theos and hologos. What I want to do today is give you an historical account of Greek philosophers and the development of the logos. I want to prove that John did not view Christ through a Greek epistemology and counter the idea that Jesus could not be God. So let's give a little historical background or an historical account of the Logos itself. There was a man by the name of Philo who was born as a Jew and from an aristocratic family. Although well-versed in the Torah and the Old Testament, Philo grew up being taught Greek philosophy. He was taught Greek philosophy in school and in time began to promote Jewish concepts through a Hellenized point of view. This can be better known as the epistemological shift as we just talked about. It is something that Dr. David Norris, one of my professors from college, said. He said that as one in which the church moved away from approaching Jesus in the context of his first century Jewish Christian claims, instead church fathers began seeing God and Christ through a Hellenistic lens. Another man by the name of Justin Martyr, who we talked about in last week's episode, was actually responsible for this shift. It derived from the core belief of dualism, like we talked about earlier, the fact that the material could not touch the material, the idea that the material could not involve itself or mix with the material. Now, all of this and more led to the idea or thought of the Logos. According to Nathaniel J. Wilson, the Greeks would have understood this word, the Logos, to be cosmic reason that gives structure and order to the operation of the universe. For centuries, it seems that philosophers and scholars of all times and backgrounds have tried to formulate and comprehend the idea of the Logos. Plato, Aristotle, and Heraclitus are just a few of these men. However, for Philo, there was a more Jewish way of viewing the Logos, one that ended up allegorizing the scripture. 
For Philo, God is transcendent, without physicality, without human emotions, through and totally outside of space-time. This is the influence of the Middle Platonism. Middle Platonism was trying to create a more logically consistent God. Now, according to Philo, God created and governed the world through mediators, and the Logos was the ultimate mediator. Out of all of these, he even referred to the Logos as an angel. Not only that, but claims that the Logos is the highest of these angels. Furthermore, Philo actually argues that the image of God is not God himself, but is the Logos, and that people are made in the image of the Logos, not the God who has no physicality or human emotion. The Logos is God's shadow, according to Philo, and the created world is the shadow of the Logos. This is interesting because the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It is almost like Philo is on the cusp of understanding the dual nature of Christ, but cannot come to terms with the immaterial touching the material. Although the Apostle John composes a beautiful motif that depicts deity being fused with human frailty. Before dealing with the hermeneutics of John's theological prologue in John chapter 1, 1 through 18, it is imperative to familiarize oneself with the setting in which it was written. Multiple sources actually confirm that this beloved disciple John was living in Ephesus during the time and had written to the believers in Asia and modern-day Turkey. A story told by Irenaeus, the late 2nd century bishop of Lyons, proves this even further. Irenaeus described a scene in which John ran out of an Ephesian public bathroom when he heard a man by the name of Serenthus was there, a known Gnostic in his time. Dr. Jeffrey Brickle further points out that John, a lover of truth, is recorded as saying, Let us save ourselves, the bathhouse may fall down, for inside is Serenthus, the enemy of truth. You have to understand that Ephesus had been a Hellenized society, one that took on a more Greek way of thinking than a Jewish way of thinking. It seems that John was surrounded by Gnostics, Greek philosophers, and believers of all sorts and kinds. Many of us are like that today. Therefore, it was imperative that John set the record straight by revealing the true reason that gives structure to the universe. The Greeks believed in the Word, capital T, capital W. In the Greek, Hologos. They believed in that. And they believed in that as the cosmic reason for the universe. But the Jews believed something different. They believed in what was called in the Hebrew, Sophia, or as we know, the wisdom of God, capital W, capital G. So John actually, I think, fused the two together in writing in the beginning. By saying in the beginning, he was appealing to the Jews. And by saying the word, he was appealing to the Greeks. John was not confused as to the identity of the one who created all things. He did not struggle. He did not waver in his belief toward the one who descended to earth, ascended on the cross, descended to death, and then ascended to life. He defied the Gnostics by writing, in the beginning was the word. Well, the Gnostics don't believe in the creation, so he set that record straight to the Jews also by saying the word was with God. And he blew Greek philosophy to its core by declaring, and the word was God, refuting the idea of dualism. After all, John writes, it was the word 
that was made flesh and dwelt among us. Strong's Concordance actually records that the word dwelt is skenu in the Greek, which means to tent or to literally encamp. In other words, Jesus tabernacled among us. He encamped among us. In this, John put to death any other temple, like the temple of Artemis, where many worshipped the goddess of Diana. John did not see God strictly through a Hellenized view, or Sophia, wisdom, but fused the two together in the person of Jesus Christ. <laughs>